Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida at aaronv.com. And by rosaryarmy.com. Have more peace. Visit rosaryarmy.com and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at rosaryarmy.com. And by the Colchester Curry House, helping people make authentic Indian cuisine from the comfort of their home. Find authentic Indian spice blends and recipes at colchestercurryhouse.com. You're listening to episode 135 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're answering more weird questions. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. And Happy New Year. Yeah, likewise. Happy New Year and all the listeners. Yes. Uh, since New Year's Day falls on a Friday we're, this year, we're having a weird questions episode for you. So, Jimmy, what are we talking about? Well, we're going to be talking about whether you can gain an indulgence without intending to, whether you, uh, can you kind of get the, get them retroactively. Also, uh, what are the implications for the canonization process of cremation? You know, because you don't have an incorruptible body if it's been cremated. Also, uh, what about the salvation of, of Nazis? You know, people like Erwin Rommel. Would the fact he was a Nazi prevent him from being saved? Also, if someone took the consecrated host from the from a church, would it be kidnapping or theft? Then we'll have questions about uh, St. Apollonia, who leaped into a fire rather than renounce her faith. How do you draw a line between martyrdom and suicide? Also, could aliens be demons? Because it's always aliens or demons, and... <laughs> Sometimes maybe it's both. Also, we'll have a question about Isaac Asimov's short story, The Last Question, which raises some theological implications. And also we'll be talking about a little bit about the uh, implications if we discovered intelligent aliens. Excellent. So here is the show. Uh, you ready for some weirdness, Jimmy? Oh, sure. All right. Uh, Patrick, by email, asks this. There are certain acts which have an indulgence attached to them. Let's say a woman named Mary is in the habit of a particular prayer at a particular place in time. One day, Mary explains her habit to Martha. Martha exclaims, did you know there's an indulgence attached to that? No, I didn't, Mary replies. My weird question is, does Mary receive those indulgences retroactively with this knowledge and desire? Or has she been unconsciously, unconsciously receiving them all along? Or is it the case that only going forward she will receive the indulgences? Wow. Or none of the above. Oh, so maybe something that he didn't think of. I yeah. like that it's in story form with mm -hmm. little quotes and stuff. So yeah. thank you, Patrick. So the church doesn't have a teaching on this, and that means we have to fall back on theological reasoning to try to formulate our best guess answer. Okay. Um, according to common theological understanding, in order to obtain an indulgence, you have to have the intention to gain it. Okay. Uh, so if you knew, for example, that saying a particular prayer has an indulgence attached and you say, I don't care, oh. then you're not going to get the indulgence. 
And so, um, so according to the standard interpretation, you have to have the intention. And that brings up the fourth possibility. When Martha tells Mary, did you know that there is an indulgence attached to that? Mary could say, I don't care. In which oh. case, she's not going to get any indulgences even going forward. <laughs> okay, yeah. Uh, because she'd have to have the intention. Now, um, it is commonly also understood, though, that the intention does not have to be conscious. It can be what's called habitual. And this applies not just to indulgences, but to lots of things um, in connected with sacramentals and sacraments and so forth. Um, basically, what's called a habitual intention also, sometimes you'll hear the phrase virtual intention is one where you have the intention, but it's implicit and you may not be thinking of it at the moment. OK, so, for example, a priest doesn't have to think every time he baptizes a baby, you know, this baby is about to be regenerated. Oh, I see. Yeah, he, yeah. But right. he has to have the intention in a general way of doing what the church does. He doesn't have to consciously think about the particulars. Which is good because you wouldn't want him later, like lying awake at night. Did I baptize that baby or not? Exactly. And that's why God doesn't require conscious, explicit intention for things, because it would create nightmares for us. Yeah. Um, so uh, if one... So according to the common theological understanding, if Mary, once she learns there's an indulgence attached to a particular act, if she then forms an intention to, you know, say, I, I would like that indulgence, um, you know, whenever I say this prayer, then at least going forward, she's going to have it until such time as she might revoke her intention. OK, but the question here is what about the past? Mm -hmm. uh, because she has not been aware of this up to now and thus did certainly did not have any conscious intention at any point of of acquiring it. It's not like she had one and it's in the back of her mind somewhere. She did not have one. So some theologians might look at that and say, well, she'll have it going forward, but it doesn't really apply to the past. Others might, though, say, well, if her will is such that um, that she says, oh, man, I wish I wish I had had known that because I would have I would have done it all along, then that could be taken as evidence of an implicit intention that she has had all along. Oh, of well, she would have wanted this if she'd known about it. And now she knows about it. So it becomes ex an explicit intention. But there was already an implicit desire there, kind of like baptism of desire can apply to people who don't even know they need to be baptized. Mm -hmm. It's like if you would have willed to get baptized, if you had known that's what God wants, then God can give you the grace of baptism early, even though you've never even heard of baptism. And so um, you could say, well, if the uh, principle of implicit desire works for baptism, it could also work for indulgences as well. And so if someone would have wanted it, uh, would have wanted to gain an indulgence from a particular action, then God knows the state of that person's heart. And so some theologians could look at it and say, well, um, then that person would have been gaining them all along. Um, you could also, I could imagine people 
saying that uh, she suddenly retroactively gains it as soon as it becomes conscious on her part. But I don't see as much of an evidential basis for that. I would tend to go with one of the other options. All right, uh, Patrick, thank you very, very much for that very uh, well elaborated question, including a, a uh, imaginary conf- uh, conversation between Mary and Martha. Uh, next, uh, Kimberly, this is also from email. Uh, my understanding is that during the canonization process, the body of the potential saint is exhumed. And if their body has not suffered corruption, that plays a role in their path towards sainthood. The question has to do with cremation. With the rise in acceptance and practice of cremation for Catholics, how would someone being a future incorruptible interact oh, interact with the act of cremation? Would the body burn at all? If it would, are we destroying future incorruptibles by practicing cremation? Mm. Well, it uh, it depends on what God wants. If God wants a body not to burn, it's not going to burn. I mean, look at look at uh, Daniel's friends in in the uh, fiery furnace. Right. So, uh, if God really, really, really determines someone's body is not going to corrupt, uh, then He could preserve it from being cremated. Uh, that's within the power of divine omniscience. I don't know of any cases of that happening when someone's died and, and chosen cremation, but I can't rule it out. In terms of um, in terms of the other possibility, I think it's quite possible that you know we might, in some cases, be cremating individuals who otherwise their bodies might have been incorrupt. Um, and in part, I say that because there is such a thing as natural incorruption. Um, it is not the case that everyone whose body is preserved, it's it's because of a miracle. Oh, so, oh, okay. There there are situations where people's bodies will naturally desiccate or dry out mm-hmm. in a way that leaves them looking, you know, fairly uh, pretty fairly lifelike, but um, uh, but due to natural causes. And so, when the church looks at at, at a saint's body or a prospective saint's body to see if there are signs of incorruption, it doesn't take that as guaranteed proof that this person is a saint, because sometimes you have natural situations where they produce the same effect. It's just one piece of evidence among many that's taken into account in someone's uh, cause for canonization. And so um, if there are cases where bodies naturally are preserved and some of those people get cremated, well, then the same thing would apply to someone who would have been um, supernaturally preserved. Uh, supernaturally incorruptible. Um, if if they chose to have their body cremated, well, then that's one piece of evidence the examiners of their cause for I canonization won't have. won't have. But that doesn't mean God can't give other evidences that would lead to their canonization. All right, uh, Kimberly, thank you very very much for that question. Uh, Christian uh, by email mm-hmm. uh, has the following question, Jimmy. Okay, I was wondering if Jimmy could speculate. I'm good at speculating. Oh, oh, yes, he can speculate Mm -hmm. on a presupposed notion on the salvation of Erwin Rommel. Rommel was a Catholic German general during World War II, Desert Fox, and supposedly involved in the plot to kill Hitler. Because of the nature of the cause he fought for, would his Catholic faith have, assuming he stayed true to its tenets, be sufficient for been sufficient for his salvation? So um, I can't obviously give a concrete answer about Erwin Rommel or anybody else uh, in terms of was he saved for reals or not. But I can speculate. Um, So as framed, the question says, if Erwin Rommel was true to the tenets of his Catholic faith, would he have been saved? 
Yes, same as anybody else. Okay. The, quest, the question is, was he or do we have evidence or how reasonable would the claim be in light of the evidence that he stayed true to his Catholic faith or to the principles of it? Well, um, being a Nazi, mm. kind of, you know, inconsistent with certain principles of the Catholic faith. Okay. On the other hand, just because someone was serving in the German military at the time does not mean that they were a supporter of Nazi ideology. Right. Like Joseph Ratzinger, who was compelled to uh, to uh, be a member of the German army, even though he and his family were very anti-Nazi mm-hmm. in their ideology. Um, also, there are situations where uh, another principle of the Catholic faith is that if one engages in warfare, it needs to be a just war. And the calculus of is this a just war is something that falls primarily on the leaders of the state because Mm -hmm. individuals are not in a position to usually to have a full appreciation of all the evidence for and against the justness of a war. But individuals do have some responsibility to make that determination. And there are situations where an individual could say, I'm sorry, this war does not appear to me to be just. And so I can't in good conscience fight in it. Well, that's a matter of individual conscience and conscience can be erroneous. Mm -hmm. So even so, uh, even even if Rommel um, said to himself, well, I think it's legitimate for Germany to embark upon this war Mm -hmm. because uh, we need to reunify for the sake of European stability. We need to reunify all of the different German speaking peoples. Yeah. So after the annexation or Anschluss of Austria, well, we still have these German speakers in Czechoslovakia and Poland, and we need to, uh, you know, reassimilate them so that we're not divided and so that we don't have continual battles over these territories and we need a buffer zone for security. I mean, if he if he believed that it was legitimate to go to war to achieve those ends, well, he may have been wrong. Um, And in the opinion of most people in the West, he would have been wrong, Um, but he would have been in innocent conscience if he just sincerely thought this. And this was through no fault of his own. He was mistaken. He had an erroneous conscience, in which case he wouldn't be held uh, responsible by God for acting on his erroneous conscience. Because if you sincerely believe something, you do need to follow your conscience. Um, You just, although you need to make sure that you've done your best to ensure that it's a correct conscience. Yes. Rather than just going with what you want to be true. Yeah, right. And and that's a subjective matter that can be known ultimately only between Erwin Rommel when he was alive, if him, and God. Um, then, so we've got a couple pieces of evidence there. Another piece of evidence, though, is the, uh, claim that he was involved in an assassination attempt on Hitler. Well, that kind of goes in the other direction, um, that would be supportive of, of, uh, of the idea of his salvation because, um, it would indicate that he perceived Hitler as a great evil that needed to be eliminated mm-hmm. and didn't see another practical way of doing it and was therefore willing to participate in one of the plots against Hitler, which put you at severe risk. And uh, and if I may, that mm-hmm. would be what you might call tyrannicide or something. Yes. And that f- f- 
is can also be justified, just like war can. can in it some can instances. be, yes. And so, um, and it, it can even involve uh, by because it involves taking great personal risk, yeah, and and so forth. And even you can be risking those around you too, because they may say, okay, now that this plot has been discovered, we're not only going to kill the plotters, we're going to kill all their families too, right? Um, and to make an example, mm-hmm. and so there could actually be a great deal of personal heroism and courage that's displayed in pursuing a tyrannicide. And in fact, um, when some of the plots against Hitler were discovered, there were draconian measures taken to make right. examples and right. so forth. Um, so uh, so that's a piece of evidence that could be perceived as pointing in the other direction. Not necessarily, though, because you can just because you correctly identify somebody as a great evil that needs to be eliminated like Hitler, and this is the only practical way to neutralize that evil, doesn't mean your motives are good because you still might yeah. have something else like, oh, and I want to replace it. Yeah, right. Um, I guess it'd be perfect for the job. Right. So yeah. um, so can't say ultimately, but those are some of the factors. But ultimately, if Rommel was uh, like anybody else, if he was living up to the degree of light he had been given at the end of his life, regardless of what had happened before. Yeah. But if at the end of his life he was... Uh, he was doing what he understood he needed to do to please God, then God would accept that and forgive him his sins, just like anybody else. Uh, Thank you very, very much, uh, Christian, for that uh, email. The next comes from uh, the Petrie family. Uh, If someone went into a church and removed the consecrated Eucharist from the church, would it be a matter of kidnapping or theft or something else? Yeah, well, come on, Jimmy. Keep throwing. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it's going to depend on the definitions that you use for kidnapping and theft, uh, because uh, and and different different systems are going to define things differently. In terms of civil law, for example, here in the United States, civil law would look at a situation where someone takes the Eucharist without uh, permission as a situation of theft, because, mm-hmm. um, but not as kidnapping, because civil law in the United States does not recognize religious claims like this is Jesus Christ, and so they don't recognize it as a person. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Eucharist as a person, and so it wouldn't count as kidnapping. Also, there are other questions one would need to ask because um, the situation of the Eucharist is different than other situations. Uh, In the case of kidnapping classically, it's not just theft where you're stealing a person. It's also understood as in some way hindering that person, because if you take them, they may they're going to experience a number of effects like um, they're not going to they may be terrified. uh, So there's mental anguish that's inflicted. They um, their movements are restricted, so they can't go one place if you're confining them to another place. Yeah. But those don't apply to Jesus in the Eucharist because Jesus is glorified in heaven. His happiness is perfect. He's not going to be mentally traumatized mm-hmm. by someone moving the, lo- the Eucharist from one place to another without authorization. Um, he, may, he may recognize that that's a sin and this person shouldn't be doing it, but he's not going to be like afraid and terrified and stuff like that, like a normal yeah, kidnap victim. Right. Also, he's already multi-locating. 
and he's omnipresent and he can he can cause anything he wants to happen anywhere in the world. So you're kind of not restricting him from being in other places by having him in this one place mm-hmm. the way you would a normal kidnap victim. And so even if you so, again, you're going to have to think, uh, think about the definition you're going to be using for kidnapping, because the ordinary definition of stealing a person does not um, capture all of the reality of what happens in Jesus's case. But the church does have another category in which to place this act that isn't simply theft or kidnapping. It's sacrilege. So this is an act. And in terms of how the church would look at this, the church in terms of canon law, would say this is an act of sacrilege. In fact, it's one of the most sacrilegious crimes there is. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the church has special provisions for dealing with this kind of sacrilege. What sacrilege is, is it's treating something sacred as if it were profane. And yes. since the Eucharist is Jesus himself, it's as sacred as you can get. And therefore, to treat it as uh, to treat it in an improper way, like stealing it from a church is a great sacrilege. And that would be the category that the church's law would primarily look at this uh, as. All right, Petrie family, thank you very, very much uh, for that question. It's weird questions with Jimmy Aiken today. And up next is a question from Amanda, uh, who says St. Apollonia leapt into a fire. They would have tossed her in anyways because she wouldn't renounce her faith. Where do you draw the line between martyrdom and suicide? This is an interesting case. Um, St. Apollonia was a Christian living in Alexandria, Egypt. So right up at, up, at, up at the mouth of the Nile on the Mediterranean coast. And um, she lived in the 200s. She died in at apparently an advanced age in uh, the year 249. And... Unlike a lot of legends about saints, you know, especially in these early periods, you'll hear a saint so-and-so, this happened to them and they were martyred. And a lot of those, you kind of go, how do we really know this? You know, do we have good eyewitness sources? And in, in some cases, the answer is no, this could be a legend. Not in hers. In the case of St. Apollonia, we have a letter from her bishop Oh. Uh, Dionysius or Dennis of Alexandria, mm-hmm. who uh, wrote about the sufferings that his uh, flock had experienced. Um, this was just this was in the last year of the reign of the emperor Philip the Arab. Yeah, there was an Arab emperor oh. um, and he was knocked over by his successor, Decius, who initi- inaugurated a persecution of Christians. But Philip was favorable to Christians. In fact, according to some accounts, within a century of his death, he was a Christian, oh, which really? would mean he was a Christian before Constantine. But even if he wasn't, he was at least favorable to Christians. So Philip the Arab was not interested in stirring up a persecution against Christians. But in the year, in the last year of his reign, riots broke out in Alexandria, and the Alexandrians on their own, without authorization from the emperor, began to persecute Christians. And they did a number of things, including to St. Apollonia, that Bishop Dennis talks about in his letter, which we have extensive quotations from. Okay. And he says that it, that uh, they took uh, St. Apollonia and uh, smashed out all of her teeth with by striking her in the mouth. 
And then they built a, a, a fire in front of the city and told her, we're going to burn you alive if you don't say these blasphemous things and renounce your Christian faith. And then the Greek says something that's a little interesting. I haven't been able to fully pursue it, but it gets translated different ways. Some will say she seemed to shrink or she she asked for a delay or something like that. But the result was they let they they released her enough that she just went ahead and jumped in the fire. Okay. And perished. And and so the way the question is described by Amanda, it's accurate. And this is a real historical circumstance that we have good evidence for. She would have been burned alive based on all the evidence and chose to end things more quickly. So what's the morality of that? Well, a parallel is potentially found in what happened on 9-11. Uh, in the year 2000, because when the Twin Towers were struck, if you go back and you look at photographs and videos, you'll see people jumping. Yeah. And the and so there was a question that got raised about what's the morality of that? Is that just suicide? Well, in some cases, the answer could have been yes, but not necessarily because the uh, you know, the fuel from the plane engines and stuff had caused this massive fire. and in order for something to count as suicide, you have to intend your death either as a goal in and of itself or as a means to another end. But your death could, you could undertake under a principle known as the law of double effect. You could undertake an action knowing it's going to lead to your death in all probability, Um but not have it be a means or an end. It could just be a side effect. And I'll tell you about that on the other side of the break. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida at AaronV.com. And by RosaryArmy.com. Have more peace. Visit RosaryArmy.com and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at rosaryarmy.com. And by Colchester Curry House, helping people make authentic Indian cuisine from the comfort of their own home. Find authentic Indian spice blends and recipes at colchestercurryhouse.com. We'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Charles J., Father Jeff H., Mary B., Zaborah T., and Tim S., their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. And now is a great time to become a StarQuest patron. Thanks to a generous gift from a StarQuest supporter, when you start a new Patreon monthly pledge at sqpn.com slash give, the first three months will be matched by an equal amount from our donor. So if you become a new patron at $10 a month, after three months, our donor will give $30 to StarQuest to support all our shows, including Mysterious World, making your gift go even further. If you've been thinking of becoming a StarQuest patron, now is the time. Visit sqpn.com slash give today. Cy Kellett, your host, and we're talking about uh, St. Apollonia, a uh, actually well-attested ancient saint uh, who died in the third century in uh, Alexandria, Egypt. Uh, and she, as she's being martyred, she leaps into the fire. So the question is, is that suicide or is that um, uh, 
martyrdom something else. or something else. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I see you've got the something else bug there. Okay. <laughs> Good to cover your bets. Um, so I was illustrating a principle that uh, I devoted significant thought to after the events of 9-11, where you had people leaping from the Twin Towers. Right. Now, if someone's saying, I just want to die and that's their goal, well, then that could be su- construed morally a suicide, but it doesn't have to be because um, it's possible to undertake an action knowing it's likely to lead to your death where it's where your foreseen death is a side effect of the action rather than being a, a uh, an intended means or end. The classic example of that is leaping on a grenade in a foxhole to save your comrades, because you foresee that if I leap on this grenade, I'm probably going to die. Right. But I don't will my death. I'm not trying to die and I'm not dying in order to bring about something else. If it so happens that I live great. Yeah. You know, right. And in the same way, someone in the Twin Towers being menaced by flames could say, I don't want to die. Mm hmm. But I also don't want to be burned hideously by these flames. So I'm going to take the only course of action that's open to me and jump out of this window, knowing I'm likely to die as a result. But that is not what I'm intending to happen. And it's not a means to some other end. If I miraculously survive, awesome. Yeah. In which case, that's not a suicide. It's Mm -hmm. an action where one is likely to die and may foresee that one is going to die. But the death is a side effect, not a means or an end to something else, not an end in itself and not a means to some other end. And so if we look at the case of someone like St. Apollonia, well, number one, there may she's she's being martyred. She's just had all of her teeth smashed out, according to her bishop. And so she's under physical and psychological duress. And that of itself could mean she's in a muddled state mentally. And if she's in a muddled state mentally, she's not going to be fully responsible for her actions and God will not hold her accountable, even if this would be understood as suicide. Also, you have to look at what's the level of doctrinal development in her age regarding suicide. That would be another condition uh, situation that you'd have to take into account in evaluating what happened with her. But it's not a slam dunk that this is a suicide because she could say, well, what I don't want to be further physically tortured. And mm-hmm. so I don't want. So the action she's seeking to avoid is undue prolongation of her pain. Yeah. So um, so uh, she's saying, I don't want these guys to torture me anymore. It's like running from the flames in the Twin Towers. I don't want this to be stretched out any longer than it needs to be. That could be her intention. Also, she could be saying in her, in her heart, God can do miracles. And mm-hmm. what a miracle it would be. God has done other miracles in connection with martyrdoms. If I jump in those flames and I'm not consumed... It could convert these people. On the other hand, if I jump in these flames and it's God's will for me to be consumed, I accept that at his hand. And in that case, she she wouldn't be in. She might be foreseeing that she's likely to die as a result of jumping in the flames. But um, that could still be a side effect, not something she's desiring as an end in itself and her death not being a means to some other end. um, and it could simply be, I'm accepting the fate here. I'm just not prolonging it. Yeah. Just like Jesus tells Judas what you're going to do, do quickly. Yeah. 
um, which you could say, oh, well, that was Jesus going to the cross willingly and he should have that could be suicide and he should have avoided as long as he could. Well, that wasn't Jesus's understanding. Yeah. You can want to get your suffering over quickly and even take actions to get it over more quickly, like saying what you're going to do, do quickly, or in St. Apollonia's case, perhaps leaping into the fire and maybe being open to, uh, you know, living and God even performing a miracle here. So it's not a slam dunk case that this is a suicide. And even if it were, um, she's under extreme mental duress and, uh, and, you know, God is merciful to people who are under extreme mental duress. Amen. Amen. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Amanda, for that question. Let's go to, uh, you know what, before I do that, it's uh-huh. Friday. So that means a new Jimmy Akin's mysterious world. Yeah. What have you been doing lately on Jimmy Akin's mysterious world? Like, hmm. um, well, we just had a, a weird question show last Friday. Oh, and right. We right. had, uh, Frank Olson's mysterious death apparently at the hands of the CIA. All right. And coming out this uh, week, we have the biggest or should have come out just today. um, We have the biggest uh, mystery in Australian history, according to some accounts, the mystery of the Somerton man. Oh, who yeah. was a, a gentleman who died back in the 1940s under mysterious circumstances. And there's good evidence he may have been a spy. Also, also next week, we're going to have fatal UFO encounters in Brazil. And that's one of my favorite titles yet. Yeah. Fatal UFO encounters in Brazil. And then for Christmas, the mystery of the Magi from the Bible. Hey, all right. Amen. The the you did number stations not too long. ago too. did number stations. Yeah. Uh, we should do that sometime just for the entire two hours of Catholic answers, just broadcast numbers, read numbers. So, yeah. Uh-huh. Right. Oh, we could read the book of numbers. <clears throat> we could. It takes, <laughs> takes a little more than an hour, but sure. Uh, all right. Uh, Mark from Melbourne, Florida or Melbourne, Florida. I don't know. I have heard a theory that alien abductions could be demons pretending to be aliens. This is supported by the fact that in a lot of these cases, anti-religious messages are given by the aliens. Could this be possible? Well, sure. All kinds of things are possible. So is it possible for demons to impersonate aliens? Sure. It's also possible for aliens to impersonate demons. Oh, this um, is getting twisted. Humans now. even impersonate demons on occasions and demons impersonate angels. So it's sort of impersonations all around. Yeah. Um, in terms of beyond possibility, if we want to look at probability, That's a whole nother question. And we need to look at concrete evidence. And this is what I don't have. I sometimes hear people say things like, as in this case, there are anti-religious messages that aliens give us. And that's signs that they're demons. Well, Hmm. um, okay, what are we talking about? Where's the evidence of that? I mean, I I haven't seen that in the uh, I, I can think of several different things that would that could potentially fall into this category. Okay. Um, But in the cases of many so-called reported alien abductions, like the Betty and Barney Hill abductions, the ones that kicked it off back in the 1960s, they didn't report the aliens saying anything about religion. 
Yeah. You know, so there's so, yeah, no the, and the premise there might be weak. In yeah. Itself. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, the but uh, what do you mean by anti-religious? Do you mean anti-Christian specifically? Um, well, that could mean they just have a different religion. But that doesn't mean someone who has a different religion from you doesn't mean you're that they're a demon. If you're talking to someone from India and they happen to be a Hindu and they tell you something they believe and it contradicts the Christian faith, it just means they're a Hindu, but they're still a human being. They're not wow. a demon. And in the same way, if you had aliens who had a different religion and believe things contrary to Christianity, that doesn't mean they're demons. That just means they have a different religion. Oh, how interesting. I never thought yeah. about alien religion. Yeah. So it's like you're dealing with a Klingon and he tells oh, yeah. you that the Klingons killed their early gods and the honored dead go to Stovokor. Yeah. Or if you're if you if you don't die with honor, you go on the barge of the dead to the bad place. Um, well, those are Klingon ideas about the afterlife, but that doesn't mean Klingons are demons. They would just be aliens with a different religion. Got so it. Um, so we have to look carefully here. And I have despite the fact I hear people making these claims about alien encounters um, and I don't know that any of these encounters are real to start with. But assuming assuming they are. I don't have good evidence of of specifically demonic things being said. Um, and and so, you know, I'm open to this possibility, but I don't have good evidence for this possibility. All right, uh, Mark, I hope that uh, s- satisfied you. He did have a second part to his question. OK, I'll, I'll give it to you real quick before yeah. we have to take a break. Uh, I have also been intrigued by the theory that God, the gods worshipped in an- antiquity, like he says, Mayan or Sumerian gods may have been demons also. Would this fit with the Catholic belief system? Because how would God allow this if true? Well, um, the there are several possibilities, but basically, yeah, it would fit. Uh, in fact, the ideas that the ideas behind that claim were essentially pioneered by the church fathers in the ancient world. Uh, in in the Greco-Roman world, you had a number of different terms for c- celestial beings. One of them was Theos, which we translate in English as God. And the term Theos could refer to the, say, the Olympian gods like Zeus and Hera and, and Apollo, or it could refer to the supreme god, the 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 Aristotle's prime mover, you know, who yeah. is above even the Olympian gods. Then there was another category of what were known as uh, a, a daimones, or a, which from which we get demon. Yeah, and a daimon was a lower order spirit. Could be good, could be bad. Um, but okay. a lower order spirit inferior to the gods, kind of like what we might think of as an angel. And the, humans could manipulate demons by magic. Now, they didn't have the Christian association of a demon is always a bad guy. OK, um, this would the word the original meaning of the term daimon just meant like an inferior spiritual being that humans could relate to in magical or religious ceremonies. And so what happened was when Christian apologists started evangelizing, they said, look, um, you're right. There is this great God behind everything. But these the problem is in this Olympian layer. Yeah. The Olympian ones aren't really deserving of the title Theos. They're not gods in that way. They're much inferior. They're just daimon. 
level beings. And so Zeus is a diamond level being and Apollo is a diamond level being. And so these pagan gods are just demons. You shouldn't be worshiping them. They're inferior spiritual beings. In fact, from a Christian point of view, they're fallen angels. Right. Right. And, um, and so, uh, this is a, a common view in Christian history and a common way of explaining why when somebody prays to Zeus, you know, they may get the rain thereafter or something. Right. Because it's demons a- can have effect in the natural world. On the other hand, though, Jesus tells us that God sends his his uh, rain on the righteous and the unrighteous as well. So if someone is unrighteously praying to Zeus, but God knows that person needs rain for their crops, God can send them the rain anyway. Yeah. And Zeus may have nothing to do with it. So um, this, so there's not a single answer on this, Yeah. but it is a, a, a way of looking at things that's consistent with and has actually been used a lot in Christian history. And it would be part of God's providence, just like he allows other evil things to happen because he knows he can ultimately bring about an equal or greater good by allowing that thing to happen. All right. Next question for you, Jimmy Michael from Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. Jimmy, are you familiar with Isaac Asimov's short story, The Last Question? Yes. All right. Thank you for that question, Michael. Oh, it goes on. I read it for the first time when I was in my teens. Yeah, I think that's when I read it, too, in high school. Uh, the story has always fascinated me, but with what I... Well, but, what I have trouble with is understanding the final sentence of the story. How do you understand the final sentence in the whole of the story? And what was the message Isaac Asimov was trying to convey? Okay. I, I don't know the last sentence, though. I do. Da, da, da. <laughs> so what happens in, in this short story is uh, people build a computer and they ask a question of it. Oh. And the question is not the great question of life, the universe, and everything, because we know the answer to that one. Is it 47? 42. 42. I couldn't. Ah, yeah. I, I, um, but they, it is a similar situation where they build this supercomputer and they ask a question that is how, essentially how can we avoid the heat death of the universe? So what heat death is, is a hypothetical state where as the universe continues to expand, the level of entropy constantly goes up. Entropy deals with the degree to which energy and and matter are diffused. So if you have a bunch of matter and energy all contained in a small space Mm -hmm. and then it, and and you let it go, it's going to start diffusing. That's why stars shine. I think I kind of remember this story. Okay. Okay. Um, And as entropy increases, energy and matter diffuse. And so if you let the universe run for trillions of years, it's eventually going to get in a very cold, thin state where the stars are burned out and the matter and energy is very scattered and it's a very high entropy state it's known as heat death well excuse me well the um the people who build the supercomputer ask it the question how can we radically decrease the entropy of the universe so you know we can stave off heat death in other words we can keep things going and the computer says answer information is insufficient to formulate a meaningful answer at this time. And so we then advance in the short story by leaps through the centuries and we see how human society changes and they keep asking the computer, how can we radically reduce the entropy of the universe? And the, every time the computer, as it, which is itself getting more and more advanced, right. says, um, says, 
you know, insufficient information for a meaningful answer at this time. And eventually the human race kind of ascends and space and time end. But the super advanced computer is left in this timeless, spaceless void, still contemplating the original question. And since there's no one left to give the answer to, the computer decides to answer by demonstration, which will also produce someone who he's able to give the answer to. And the computer says, let there be light. And there was light. And that's the final sentence of the story. Yeah. And so um, so the computer has reversed heat death by creating a new universe in a low entropy state through let there be light. That's the solution. And so um, this is what's known in science fiction sometimes as a shaggy God story. <laughs> As opposed to a shaggy, shaggy dog, dog story. story. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, a shaggy God story is one where you use science fiction concepts to explain something religious. Yeah. In yeah. this case, the beginning of the world. The other common one is, uh, oh, guess what? The two astronauts are named Adam and Eve. Right. Or, or who mourns for Adonis. Well, that would be another similar one. Yeah. Although I was also going to say in one DC comic I read from the 70s, the two astronauts end up being named Crip and Ton. Um, So so you have these sci fi things now in terms of as ways of exploring religious concepts. Um, I'm I'm not a big fan of this kind of story. And in fact, most science fiction authors are not big fans of these because they're kind of cliche. Yeah. And um, in terms of why do they get written and what? Asimov's point may have been, I don't know that Asimov had a point. Now, he was he was a secular individual of Jewish background. He didn't really believe in God, but he did explore religious concepts. And um, I don't think he's making a particular statement here. He's certainly not saying, I think this is how it really happened. Yeah. Um, but he's just, he's just here's an interesting thing that could hype. You can kind of see how this would accomplish the same effect. And really what it's meant to do and a reason, uh, the reason behind a lot of Shaggy God stories is it's just meant to end your story on a note of wonder. Yeah. You know, that's really all that they're trying for. They're not trying to make some deep statement. They're just trying to give the ooh experience to the audience at the end. Yeah. Now, um, when this kind of science fiction exploration of a religious concept is done well, it can actually um, be of religious interest because a principle that I've had for a long time in evaluating would this miracle be possible is, well, if I can think of a way to do it using advanced physics or science fiction physics, if I can think of a way to do it, then God knows at least that way. Yeah, and right. probably lots of others. Right. I can't say God used the way I thought of, but I can show a miracle is possible uh, yeah. by thinking of a science fiction way to accomplish that miracle. And so uh, there can be a religious as opposed to artistic interest to these stories, but they're usually not done that well. Um, and in this case, it's like, so could our universe from a Christian perspective really have been created by a supercomputer that was built by inhabitants of a previous universe. And no, that's not the explanation for our universe. Well, I mean, could be, but not all of creation because all of creation has to be produced by an uncreated being. And even if there were a pocket somewhere where a machine reversed the entropy of a given pocket of creation, the machine is itself created. It's not the ultimate explanation for all of creation. You need an uncreated being for that. 
Uh, thank you very, very much for that interesting question, Michael, uh, from Puerto Rico. Daniel uh, follows with this question. I have been trying to read about the theological implications about finding out that aliens exist. And I was wondering if you had any idea how we might determine if any aliens we had met were fallen once we knew they had souls. And actually, I've got for soul. Oh, uh, actually, all I've got for souls is your suggestion of seeing whether they have a concept of God. OK, so how would we be able to tell if aliens were fallen uh, once we knew they had souls? OK, um, for further background on the theological implications of the discovery of alien intel of intelligent alien life, you want to go listen to episode 55 of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World, where we devote the entire hour to that. Um, okay. But in terms of answering this specific question, actually, when I talk about aliens and do they have a concept of God, I'm not really answering the question, do they have souls? All living things, according to the standard theological understanding, all living things have a soul. It's a question of what kind of soul does it have? In the case of uh, plants, they have what are called vegetative souls that allow them to grow and reproduce and process energy, but, you know, not think. In the case of animals, they have what are called sensitive souls that allow them to feel and perceive things and also engage in a primitive form of reasoning of different levels. I mean, a butterfly is nowhere near as intelligent as a dog. Um, and then uh, humans have what are called rational souls, which allow us to have human level reason. And we know that human level souls survive death. The common opinion is historically has been that the other kinds of the lower kinds of souls don't, but at least ours does. Mm -hmm. And so if we met aliens, um, I would assume they have a soul. The question is, is it a rational soul or not? And if they display human level reason, you know, the ability to even if their intelligence is different than ours, if it's approximately equal, I'm going to be inclined to say that, yeah, they've got a rational soul. Um, yeah. And if they have the concepts of God and the afterlife, I would say even if they don't understand them the way we do, I would say and they have a spiritual destiny. Okay. Because they wouldn't have these concepts if they didn't. Um, these The f existence of these concepts in their race indicates they have a spiritual destiny the same way we do. So the question of are they fallen would then be resolved um, in terms of a couple principles. One thing you have to look at is what are they naturally designed to do? Um, humans are naturally designed to have um, monogamous pairs. That's the ideal situation for raising human offspring. That is not true of lions. You know, oh, right, right. lions are not monogamous. Yeah. Um, and so um, we'd have to look at them and we would have to take into account their behavior somewhat sophisticatedly. We'd have to say, OK, are they designed for this type of behavior? Because even though a particular behavior might be wrong for us to engage in. It yeah. might not be wrong for them because their nature would be their nature is not human nature. It's right, different. Right. And so we, we couldn't determine are they fallen simply by are they doing things that would be sins for human beings? No, we right. have to figure uh, out their nature and say, is this or in accord with their nature or not? Yeah. Now, part of that is going to be interviewing them and say, seeing do they have the concept of guilt? 
if they have the concept concepts like guilt and shame and a recognition they've done wrong, that is a good sign that they are fallen because that's also the principal evidence that we're fallen and not simply just acting in accord with some nature. The fact that we re- have a conscience that says you did wrong yeah. is evidence that we are, in fact, fallen. So, Jimmy, what's going to be the subject of our next episode? Next week, we're going to be back with another mystery. Until then, Happy New Year, everybody. Happy New Year. Folks, send us your feedback by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page, sending an email to mysterious at sqpn.com, or send a tweet to at mys underscore world, which the hashtag of mysterious feedback. Until next time, Jimmy Akin, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Tom. Once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World on StarQuest. And Happy New Year, everyone. <laughs>